This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anna Lemke, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. I am very happy to have you. The first time I heard your name was from Andrew Huberman, right. who is extraordinary. And yes. he had mentioned you and the book, Dopamine Nation. Mm -hmm. And I'm obsessed with dopamine <laughs> okay. and certainly its role in my life. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to take a different approach, I think, than most people that have interviewed you who sort of immediately go to the dark side of dopamine mm -hmm. and addiction and mm -hmm. all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I think it may be my superpower. And so the question that I get asked all the time is like, hey, I want to achieve something in my life, but I'm struggling, can't get out of bed, I'm bored, and whatever. And my answer is always, you just don't want it badly enough. Mm. And as I learn about dopamine and the difference between craving something versus getting something, mm. and you get into dopamine and how dopamine's really about wanting something. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized I might just be really good at tying <laughs> wanting something mm -hmm. to a flood of dopamine, which yeah. makes me feel good. Mm -hmm. And then I'm very careful to make sure that only the pursuit matters. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. then if you're careful that the pursuit is what I call exciting and honorable, right. so that you're not chasing things that are mm -hmm. self-destructive or detrimental to other people. In fact, they elevate other people. Mm -hmm. Uh, you get into this really interesting self-reinforcing loop. So I'm curious if you've thought about the positive side of dopamine. I love the way you articulated that. I That is actually my life philosophy as well, that the process is really what matters and not the outcome. But I guess I've never thought about it or framed it in terms of the neuroscience of dopamine. It seems that you're suggesting that your drug is the pursuit and that you get dopamine from that. And whether or not your efforts lead to the desired outcome is separate from you your, have to make it your rewarding experience. Otherwise, right. you're playing a dangerous game yeah. because, A, you said in the book, the humans are the ultimate seekers, yes. if I remember the phrase yes. correctly. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, yes, that is exactly true. Yeah. And if you seek poorly, meaning blindly, mm -hmm. that you don't realize that you're a seeking machine, that nature mm -hmm. has handcrafted right. you to right. seek mm -hmm. versus have, right. because you can never eat a meal big enough where mm -hmm. you don't need to eat again. So it's like nature had to find that way to keep you going. Yes. And so, so many people think that, you know, wealth is usually the one, right? If I could just right. get that amount of money, I right. would feel good. Right. And of course it won't work. Yeah, I mean, I think what the the wisdom that you're offering, which I think is really valuable, is the reward itself, whatever it is, 
might be rewarding the first time around, but then over time, the way that we're wired will make it less reinforcing, less rewarding. So then we need a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. So ultimately, the reward itself is not the thing to seek because it's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You, you, it's, it's ever elusive. But I want to ask you something because, um, you know, you say that for you, the it's the seeking that is the source of the reward itself. And yet you have been very successful in your life. So it's been a positive reinforcing loop. It might be that your trajectory is very long so that you know you're, you're really good at delaying gratification. On the other hand, it seems like you get there, you get your goal. So I guess I'm wondering what you would say with this kind of frame, um, if the goal really is not achieved and if it's repeatedly not achieved, what, what, how do you, how do you then say to somebody, you know, oh, it's just about the pursuit. Yeah. You've gone right to the deep end of the pool. So (laughs) here, this is really the secret to success Uh is I want being a good person to be enough. Like when Mm -hmm. I advise people about business, your goal really does need to be honorable. Now Mm -hmm. in a hyper-connected social age, you'll get raked Mm -hmm. if you're not after good things. Right. But unfortunately, being a good person isn't enough. And so you have to also be business savvy. Mm -hmm. So I amended a word to my phrase around pursuit to be sincere pursuit. Mm -hmm. So I wake up every day sincerely pursuing my goal. So my goal is to build the next Disney. Now, that's a dizzying endeavor, right? So they have a 90 year head start. They have billions of dollars in (laughs) revenue, billions of dollars in IP. Like Mm -hmm. the the odds of me pulling it off are vanishingly slim. Mm So I know better than to hold myself accountable to actually building the next Disney. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's so far in the future that even if I do it on an accelerated time frame, what are we talking, 10 years, 20 mm-hmm. years? Like that would be astronomically fast. So to be able to sustain myself for two decades mm-hmm. in the case of like just rampant success, I'm murdering it, just mm-hmm. every day is, is a victory. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be such prolonged gratification, I'd never make it, right? Mm -hmm. So on the days where even I don't feel like getting out of bed or I'm being kicked in the face by some just unending string of failures, you really have to say, the thing I'm gonna value myself for right in this moment is sincerely pursuing this goal because it's tempting to just play rhetoric, right? And you can actually get away with that for a while where people buy into the rhetoric, it makes them feel good to, in, in today's social climate, They can watch me pursue my dreams, my huge dreams. Mm -hmm. Maybe I fail. Mm -hmm. They can live by proxy. Mm -hmm. And so for some period of time, I could get away with just rhetoric and I can still gain followers and all that. Mm -hmm. But because I hold myself accountable to sincere pursuit, even if people are cheering me on and saying that, oh my God, this is amazing and I love that you have this big dream. I'm looking at myself going, did I actually measure myself against the progress I would need to make to build the next Disney, to take the real steps towards doing that. And so being able to assess from a business perspective, what's real, am I actually making progress? Mm. But the tricky part is I'm not valuing myself when the answer is I have failed and I've let's say even moved backwards. Mm -hmm. It was, but did I really play to win? Mm -hmm. And if I showed up and played to win, but failed, Mm -hmm. I still emotionally reward myself. Mm -hmm. If I win, but I'm not actually playing to win, Mm -hmm. then I don't cheer myself on. Mm -hmm. And that is nuanced perhaps, but it really matters. And so I end up on a long time frame because I fail a lot, but on a long time frame because I'm learning from those failures, 
I actually make progress. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you have some kind of intrinsic reward that you give yourself based on kind of this sort of morality you've created around trying your hardest is that is that sort of that's the... part of it but i think a little bit um like so in the book you talk about how you can put a running wheel mm -hmm. like a rat running wheel if people can imagine that little metal mesh mm -hmm. thing um in the wild and yet the animals will still go and play on it right and so there is and i'd be curious to know what you think from an evolutionary standpoint is that the rats or because there it was like frogs mm -hmm. rats snails mm -hmm. like all these different mm -hmm. creatures come and play mm -hmm. on this thing uh is it that nature needed them to be willing to do hard things in mm -hmm. order to escape predation mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think we, we, we are hardwired to approach pleasure and avoid pain. And that's really at the heart of our dopamine reward system. And you're absolutely right. Dopamine is not just about the reward. It's also about the wanting and the motivation. And it's relative dopamine. So it's whether our dopamine is above or below tonic baseline that really um, is at the heart of this motivational cycle. Um, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, the just so story that we can tell ourselves is that the reason that Mother Nature made a reward pathway that doesn't just give us the reward, but also makes us pay for it afterwards by going into this dopamine deficit state is because it's that's the ideal biological system to drive us to continue to seek to not never be contented with with what we have. And what I'm finding very interesting in talking to you is that you're kind of, let's say, life hack in the modern ecosystem where we have everything we could ever really want and where this this type of, um, you know, physiologic with this drive toward home homeostasis and this pleasure-pain balance and the dopamine deficit state, which I'm going to assume because you read the book, you understand. We're um, going to have to go into the pleasure-pain. That That yeah. is so interesting. Yeah. But finish yeah. that thought. I'll bring us back to it. It's it's like the it's like it's like a nature's cruel trick in the modern ecosystem because it you know essentially turns us all into people with addiction because we have everything so that that constant pursuit that never being you know satisfied with what, what, what with what we have with always wanting more um, you know gets us into this trap of compulsive overconsumption or addiction but you have decided that the way to sort of manage that reality is to make the pursuit the heart of it, knowing that you may not get it, but that that is not the most important piece, that the most important piece is to pursue and to be honorable about it, right? And to um, give it your best shot, so to speak. Is, is that a fair? It is, uh -huh. and I, I do wonder if my brain were biopsy if <laughs> do i just have like a screaming amount of dopamine receptors and so i'm particularly receptive to that pleasure cycle because or 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 it's possible that you actually have a, you know a paucity of dopamine receptors so that so that your relentless pursuing is because you have some kind of um you know difficulty feeling reward and so you have to the chills <laughs> and you know there's some science actually showing that that people who are vulnerable to addiction are people who do have this relative insensitivity to rewarding experiences and so need more sensory experiences more input in order to kind of just bring them you know up to other people's baseline 
Um, and so you may be, you know, in that category. Um, and, and I always like to say, you know, that that people that are wired for addiction, because we do know that this is um, heritable, that not everybody is equally vulnerable to the problem of addiction. And I, I really believe, and again, these are sort of evolutionary just so stories, but I believe that, you know, tens of thousands of, of years ago, people who were wired for what we call addiction today, back then were you know, especially valuable to the tribe because those were the people, they were the seekers, right? They were the ones who weren't satisfied, who were willing to go further and, and work harder to get what we need. Of course, today it's tricky because you have to kind of make it up. And so you've you've made it up. I mean, you, you've made this goal and, you know, you're relentlessly pursuing it and it has kind of meaning and purpose and it keeps you busy and it turns out you're really good at it. So you're successful. So that's, that's a wonderful. But I just will hold out to you that another response to this modern conundrum is to do almost the exact opposite and and to sort of say, you know, this pursuit of these rewards is really um, ultimately empty, and so I'm not going to, I'm not going to play that game at all. I'm not going to frame the my of life. Dopamine rewards. The the okay, yeah. I mean the pursuit. I mean rewards. You know, are what are our dopamine? It's a, it's a signal, right? We do something, it feels good. Our brain releases dopamine. It says, do that thing again, and then we go into a dopamine deficit state, and then that says, oh, you know, that's a very powerful powerful physiologic drive that insists that we pursue that thing again, even when we stop liking it. So that mm. that's the vicious cycle. But um, I, I'm, just, I'm just throwing it out there like as a philosophical idea that your solution to this modern problem, and it's a modern problem that we all have, is to seek more, to try harder, um, to find the, the road with the most friction and go there. Um, my pursuit is slightly different than that. Okay. And so I'll be interested to see if this resonates with you. What I'm really doing is I had a fundamental realization. So in my early twenties and longtime listeners of the show be tired of hearing me say this, but in my <laughs> early twenties, I've never heard it. So, right. In my early twenties, I was sliding towards depression. Mm -hmm. I would come home from work and just lay on the floor of mm -hmm. my apartment mm -hmm. and was just like, what am I going to do with mm -hmm. my life? Mm -hmm. And I had early realizations that my brain was my problem. Mm -hmm. And so I started reading about the brain. Mm -hmm. And the more I could understand the mechanisms of my brain, the more I felt in control. And mm -hmm. so I'm obsessed with conveying this idea that you're having a biological experience. Mm -hmm. And so once I understood, okay, wait, I have this organ, it works in a certain way, Nature has spent millions of years of evolution fine-tuning it to make sure that I do the right things to stay alive long enough mm -hmm. to have kids that have kids. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, then if that's really the game, then really life is a game of neurochemistry. And I realized through the pursuit of success, which early in my career I was sort of pseudo-successful at, and luckily it was just enough sort of pseudo-success that I realized, mm -hmm. oh, this is never going to bring me pleasure. Mm. And so I better divorce myself from outcomes and think only about what would I enjoy struggling at. So mm -hmm. struggling well became a focus. Right. But really the, the meta focus was this is a game of managing my neurochemistry. Mm. And whenever I have a problem in my life, it's because I am in a neurochemical state that does not feel good. Mm -hmm. And so nature has all this energy pushing me at my back to get away from that. Mm -hmm. 
and it's moving me away from certain things and towards others. And then thinking, so I, in my family, thankfully not my immediate family, but my extended family, there's much addiction. Okay. And so I got to see it up close mm -hmm. and was like, yeah, mm -hmm. that doesn't look like a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And so um, I never went down that path, but it became clear to me that people were doing drugs to manage their neurochemistry. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, this is then the, the game, mm -hmm. like the with a capital T, mm -hmm. game with a capital G. Like mm -hmm. this is the game, mm -hmm. is neurochemical mm -hmm. management. Mm -hmm. And so all of my rules in life, all of my hard pursuit in business, mm -hmm. all of that, even love mm -hmm. is recognizing, oh, this is a game of neurochemistry. Mm -hmm. And so I've been married now for 19 years and change, mm -hmm. uh, been together for 21 years. Mm -hmm. And part of that was, once I understood that relationships are this sort of ever-changing neurochemical cocktail, I wasn't surprised when that initial drug-like love of just being mm -hmm. consumed mm -hmm. by thoughts of my wife, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, when it went away, wasn't mm -hmm. surprising to right. me. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the nuance is knowing that, wink, wink, mm -hmm. the meta game is just neurochemistry. So it's interesting. So you have sort of boiled it down to this purely reductionistic, yeah. like chemical soup. I just need to manage the molecules in my brain and, you know, taking drugs, you know, using addictive substances is maybe one way to manage it in the short term. But in the long term, that's not going to work out. And I know that because I've seen it, you know, in people in my family and maybe you just intuited it also. So, so you kind of immediately went to the pain side of the balance and said, I'm going to do these things, which I think are more likely in the, in the long run to be a good way to manage my neurochemistry. It was a bit stumblier than that okay. <laughs> in terms of, I wasn't clever like that in my early twenties. It took uh -huh. me a long time to piece all this together. Yeah. But, um, the pleasure pain balance is probably something we, cause it's going to keep coming up. We yeah. should take the time to define that because this is just revelatory in your work. Thank you. I didn't understand that until mm -hmm. I read your book. And yeah, so if you can walk people through that, I think it'd be really helpful. Sure. So one of the most, I think one of the most important findings in neuroscience in the last hundred years is that pleasure and pain are co-located, by which I mean that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain. That's so crazy. I know. And they work like opposite sides of the balance, of a balance, like a balance, a teeter-totter in a kid's playground, except when the balance is at rest and level, it's actually parallel with the earth. It's not tipped one way or another. So when we do something that's pleasurable or reinforcing or rewarding, that balance tips to the side of pleasure. When we experience something painful, like cutting our finger, it tips to the side of pain. But one of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't want to be tipped for very long, either to pleasure or pain. And the, the brain will work very hard to restore a level balance or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. And one of the things that I find fascinating is that it's really a biological imperative, not just in our own physiologic symptoms, but in the universe to go to homeostasis. And that any deviation from neutrality is actually a form of stress. In fact, biologists define stress as a deviation uh, from neutrality. In or from, either direction. In either direction, right. And that's really, that's the key. Um, you know, getting back to sort of the problem with modern life. And one of the main problems with modern life is that we have too many pleasurable 
substances and behaviors, and that is actually stressing us out. It's literally stressful because we're causing this huge deviation from, from neutrality. But getting back to the pleasure pain balance. So when we do something just obviously pleasurable, like, you know, I don't know, having a beer or playing a video game or eating a piece of chocolate. It depends who you are because people are different. But in general, those things are pleasurable to many people. What we do is we get a little um, tilt to the pleasure side and we get the release of dopamine in our brain's reward pathway, which is this evolutionarily, phylogenetically conserved, very, very old part of the brain that's been unchanged in our brains for just millennia and is also identical in other species all the way down to the lizard, which is why it's sometimes called the lizard brain. Mm. You know, our evolution meant that we've piled a whole bunch of other layers on top, but that part is exactly the same as it's always been. And it's the part that gets us again to approach pleasure and avoid pain. But here's really the key. The way that the brain restores a level balance or homeostasis after this deviation to the pleasure side is to not just bring it level again, but tilt it an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And that's called the opponent process reaction. And I sort of think of that as these little gremlins that represent neuroadaptation hopping on the pain side of the balance, but they like it on the balance, so they stay on until it's tipped an equal and opposite amount. That's that moment of wanting just one more video game, you know, another beer, another piece of chocolate. Now, if we wait a little bit, because it's a powerful physiologic drive to reach for more. If we wait, the gremlins hop off, that feeling passes, and homeostasis is restored. And we want homeostasis to be restored. It's really important because it's fundamental to the resilience of this system. Because when the system is at baseline homeostasis, it's sensitive, right? It senses new pleasures. It's aware of um, potential dangers and painful things so we know to avoid them. But let's look at what happens if we, instead of waiting for those gremlins to hop off, instead immediately reach for another beer, another piece of chocolate, another video game. Another major rule of this balance is that with repeated exposure to the same or similar stimuli, that initial response gets weaker and shorter in duration, and the after response gets stronger and longer. So I think of that as sort of an Arnold Schwarzenegger type gremlin hopping on the pain side to bring it balanced again. So we need stronger gremlins, right? We need more and essentially what's happening in the brain, by the way, with those, with those neuroadaptation gremlins is that we're down-regulating our own dopamine transmission. We're taking our dopamine receptors that are on the outside of our neurons and we're resorbing them into the neuron, all of which is a way to accommodate this huge increased bolus in dopamine. But again, what ends up happening is now that opponent process reaction is stronger and longer. So we go from, you know, shorter and weaker to stronger and longer on the pain side of the balance. And that is the fundamental sort of paradox or vicious cycle that we get into, especially when we're living in a world in which we have nearly universal ubiquitous access to highly potent, highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, which don't just release a little bit of dopamine, but a whole huge bolus. And we're all surrounded by them all the time every day. And over time, what that means is that we're bombarding our dopamine reward pathway with way more dopamine than our primitive brains can handle. And the result is that we end up with enough 
gremlins on the pain side of the balance to fill this whole room. And they are now camped out there. And that's called allostasis. So we've gone from homeostasis to allostasis. And allostasis is where our body has to accommodate and work very, very hard to try to restore homeostasis. And if it's unable to do that using the normal mechanisms, it essentially changes our set point. So now we've got those gremlins camped out there. They're not leaving. Even when we wait a while, they're camped out there. You might also even think of it as sort of the fulcrum of that balance shifting slightly mm -hmm. to the side. That means that our, our, our balance is tipped to the side of pain. It's actually easier to tip it to That's the side right. of pain. That's right. It's easier to tip it to the side of pain, and it's really, really hard now to experience pleasure. And That's we did really not more, a lot more pleasure to do it. And when we're not using, we're in a state of anxiety, universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving for our drug. And so this is the fundamental problem. And what I hypothesize in my book, because I actually believe it's true, although somewhat controversial, is, I mean, I guess, I don't know how controversial it is. I think it's a relatively new idea. If you look at rates of depression and anxiety all over the world today, they are going up. Skyrocketing. Skyrocketing. Suicide rates too. Also physical pain. The richest countries in the world are the countries that have the most suicide, anxiety, depression, and physical pain. And this is by many different measures, many different survey measures, many different types of studies. So clearly we have something very strange going on here where the more we have of the kinds of you know ideal things that we think would make a good life, right? Lots of food, lots of fun stuff, um, you know, lots of medicines to protect us from you know, illness and pain we've clearly reached some kind of tipping point where we're now essentially more miserable than ever. And the question is why, why would that be? And I do think that the pleasure pain balance explains that because our primitive brains were not wired for an easy, hyper convenient world, we are suffering as a result of all of this access to these feel good things. This is bananas. So what I love about science is that it makes predictions, hypotheses. Yeah. And like you're saying, that's as you were explaining the pleasure, pain, pain balance. I was thinking, oh, this makes certain hypotheses about what then would result. So, for instance, that you would start taking a drug and then you would need more and more and more of it right. to get the same level of pleasure, mm -hmm. which, of course, anybody looking at drug addiction knows that that's exactly what happens. Right. And people are chasing insane amounts of the drug to get the same high, which they can never quite recapture. Right. Um, it would also predict that we'd have these elevated levels of things like fibromyalgia, where it's just sort of yes. generalized pain. And I don't know mm -hmm. why I'm in pain. Right. Uh, which, of course, we see. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, I mean, it's a little unnerving, but it's nice to have a potential solve for why all these things are happening. In the book, you talk about somebody who was doing cutting and they just couldn't stop themselves right. because right. it was making them feel something. Right. And right. that is really crazy, but certainly lends a lot of credence to this pleasure-pain balance. Yeah, so let's talk about cutting for a second because it gets to you know, the, the sort of what to do about this. And, and we started out talking by what, what you sort of, you know, intuitively figured out what to do about this problem, which is essentially what Dopamine Nation 
recommends, which is to say the first thing that we need to do is to cut out all of these feel-good substances and behaviors, at least for long enough for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off and for homeostasis to be restored. Dopamine fasting. Yeah, essentially dopamine fasting, right? And whatever your source of dopamine is, to cut it out for long enough. Now, in my clinical experience, in my practice, because I have patients who come in seeking help for anxiety, depression, insomnia, and the first thing that I will typically do is to have them cut out their feel-good drugs and behaviors. Very counterintuitive, right? Because you're going to feel worse before you feel better. Because as soon as you do take the the weight off the pleasure side, you're going to get this balance slamming to the side of pain because now you've accumulated all these gremlins, right? But if you wait long enough without using, they eventually do hop off. In my clinical practice, it takes a minimum of a month abstaining for that to happen. I was very impressed you got that teenage girl to cut yes. out marijuana yes. for a month. I was yeah. like, all right, how's she going to yeah. pull this off? Right, right. Yeah, and it's hard to do because, um, you know, the sensation is that that I'm depressed and anxious and that's why I'm using because yes. it relieves it. And what we're not able to see is the true cause and effect of, oh, because I'm using this substance repeatedly and bombarding my, you know, dopamine reward pathway, that is why I'm depressed and anxious. And and that's the thing that we're just that cause and effect loop. We're not good at seeing. But, you know, she was willing to take the, that leap of faith to stop smoking cannabis for a month. And ultimately what, what she discovered, and this is really the beauty of this intervention, is that she herself gathered data and realized, you know, after, first of all, she realized in the first two weeks she felt horrific, vomiting. You know, she had ne- and she realized that was her realization. Oh, my goodness, I was really addicted like I hadn't realized I was but that physiologic response when she stopped was a wake-up call for her and then when she got to four weeks she just felt so much better you know less depression less anxiety more time to do other things more enjoyment in other things because of course with addiction our, our our focus narrows on that one thing and then she herself was motivated now did she want to you know, continue to abstain from cannabis? No, she didn't. <laughs> Most of my patients don't. But she wanted to use really differently than she had before. She wanted to have a different relationship with cannabis. She certainly wanted to use less. She certainly didn't want to use every day because there is something important about that 24-hour cycle. And if we're sort of pinging our reward pathway every single day, we're more likely to accumulate those gremlins on the pain side of the balance and to develop tolerance. What is it about weed? People be smoking weed. Yeah. Like it is crazy. There yeah. are people in my own life that be smoking weed. Okay. And I don't, is it, is it the sort of perceived harmlessness or is there like I, whatever people get out of weed, I don't get. Mm-hmm. I will say the one caveat is sex on weed is crazy. <laughs> like it, in, like when you first do it. And of course, even though I rarely do it, I find that it does diminish over time. Yeah. But why weed? What, what, what's going on? Well, I mean, so as, as with all intoxicants, they mimic a chemical that our brain makes. And our brain makes a version of cannabis um, that binds to the anandamide receptor. And weed is essentially a super potent form of a chemical that our brain makes anyway. And if you look at the evolution of weed over the past 30 to 50 years, it's slowly been made much more potent. So, you know, our grandparents' weed is not our kids' weed, (laughs) right? It's gone from really a soft drug to a hard drug, which also makes it more addictive. If you look at the the sort of things that make something addictive. Is that considered uh, controversial? Because for a long time, people were like, come on, you can't get addicted to weed. Mm. 
Sure. You know, I guess it is probably still controversial. It's not at all controversial for me because <laughs> I would say about a third of my clinical practice is people coming in and wanting help for a cannabis addiction. Whoa. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm in Northern California. You know, cannabis is, is medicine. And um, a lot of people end up addicted. The data show that about 9 to 10% of people who use weed will end up addicted to weed, but that's probably an underestimate, especially given the rising rates of daily cannabis use. The other thing about cannabis is not only was it less potent in the 1960s and 70s, but people tended to be weekend recreational users with friends. What the data show now is that many, many more people are using daily, they're using all day long, and they're using a highly potent form. So it's essentially like smoking a pack of cigarettes. People wake up, they start smoking, they smoke all through the day, and then they start again the next day. And there are more and more weed users like that than there used to be a generation or two ago. Yeah, it's really like, even when I was a kid, it was like, I remember seeing weed for the first time and freaking out. I was like, yo, like that might as well have been heroin. <laughs> uh -huh, I was like really right, sketched right. out by it. And I was like, okay, I need to get away from this. Right. Uh, and admittedly, I grew up with a mother who was just beating us about the head, mm -hmm. neck and chest about staying away from drugs. And if yeah. somebody like she used to quiz us, if somebody offers drugs, mm -hmm. what do you do? Where do you go? Mm -hmm. Sounds like me. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Certainly work. Neither my uh -huh. sister or I use uh, any drugs. Um, and you guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off, and that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash impact theory.
In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. Now it's like really popular. And I don't have a beef with it. If like people have a healthy, this is a weird word to use uh, when talking about drugs, but if they have a, a you know relationship with it that isn't detracting from the rest of their life, cool, no moral judgments whatsoever. But it is interesting to me from like a, an anthropological standpoint yeah. to watch how it has changed in culture to go from this thing that only potheads, which used to be right. a super derogatory term, would use to now it's like, you almost have to do it to be cool. Right, and the other thing, very important, I mean, you know, cannabis has become medicine, right? I mean, and there there is clearly um, short-term medical utility. I will so say though that the studies showing medicinal benefit, whether it's for um, seizure spasticity or for pain, um, or for you know other indications are really short-term studies. We do not have good long-term studies showing long-term benefit, especially when used daily. Um, but people have this notion that cannabis is very safe and that it's not addictive. And we do know, you know from studies uh, out of NIDA that the more people associate something as being medicinal, the less likely they are to be concerned about the dangers or the harms. So, is there studies coming out that show dangers and harms? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, especially again with uh, long-term use. First of all, smoking anything is bad for you, right? So, um, certainly, um, lung damage is is huge. And most people who use cannabis, whether recreationally or medicinally, smoke it. There, most people are not, you know, doing edibles. There are people who do edibles, people do it in combination, but most people smoke it. Um, and there are a lot of uh, potential downsides associated, again, especially with daily long-term cannabis use, mm -hmm. not the least of which is the potential of becoming addicted. Yeah, it's interesting. So yeah, addiction is a, a whole thing that you go into in the book. It's really fascinating. The lengths to which the human mind will go to get these dopamine fixes. Right. Um, the story that you, I think it's the first story you tell in the book about the guy using electricity to stimulate right. himself, which right. is pretty intense. Uh, but the lengths that people will go to when they get in that cycle, yeah. 
Um, so he would he created this machine, not to be too graphic, mm-hmm. that he would attach to the more sensitive bits of himself. Yes. Uh, and he's I think there was one point where he said he could keep himself like just below orgasm for like right. 20 hours. Right. And right. that just that was exhausting to just to thinking, read, right. let alone to do <laughs> what what's going on for somebody at a, a sort of physiological mm-hmm. level when they get into that loop. Right. And then how do we begin to work our way out of it? Well, I mean, he progressed to that, right? Over, He started out just um, with compulsive masturbation to images. But over many years, he ultimately progressed to that. And again, that speaks to tolerance, needing more of a drug to get the same effect over time or more potent forms. Mm-hmm. And so the machine for him was this very potent form. I will also say that it also... it, 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 it it enlisted his creativity, which was part of the appeal, and which which I often see with. I've people. read the book, so I know what you mean. But tell people because I found this okay. really interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, it, it you know he built the machine himself, right? And he's a scientist, so that was something that was exciting for him. Um, you to know, research it and figure yeah, out. Yeah, right, figure out how to put like it together. Part of the shower ring, right, he had to like take right, it apart. Exactly. I mean, you know, you can imagine the anticipation because what what we experienced when we're either euphorically recalling using our drug of choice or we get reminded of it from something in our environment, Environment, we actually get a little bit of a dopamine spike just That's from that, followed by a little dopamine deficit state, which is then, you know, triggers our craving or our which drive. really to, makes you want to do it. So just right. thinking about it feels good for a second, yeah. then bad. And so right. you're like, oh, I got to go do it. Yes, that's right. That's right. What a gnarly trick. Yes, it's very gnarly. But basically, um, and then also he he could program all these different things. I mean, that then was part of the excitement. Different too. settings. He was letting settings, people control it over the internet. Right. I mean, it really got yeah. like it really got yeah. it from again from an anthropological standpoint. Yeah. God bless him for being so vulnerable I and like know. willing to discuss He's it, which such is a amazing. Guy, yeah. But what a glimpse into the human mind. Right. And I do not take myself out of that. I am right. just as mired in being a, right. a human animal as anybody else. Right. But right. wow, it was right. how much he got caught up in it, yes. right? How he was destroying so his marriage, right. distancing from right. his kids. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Really, really fascinating. Yeah. But the part like so a I've said this many times, I am so glad like truly you want to have the chills now gratitude <laughs> for the fact that Internet pornography did not exist when I was a yeah. teenager mm-hmm. for I can tell like I was right. very uh, joyful yeah. when you found that one kid that had yeah. like the yes. VHS porno tape. Right. Uh, but at least then I had to give it back. Right, but right. The thought of having access to yeah. that with my undeveloped prefrontal cortex. Right. Oh, dear God. Yeah. And that's really one of the reasons I decided to lead with that story, even though I think for, for some people it was sort of too much. But I really, I really wanted to make the point that like, this is a really serious problem, right? You know, I mean, pornography addiction is huge. And and we're talking about addiction a lot more than we ever did before, but we're not really talking about pornography addiction. Mm-hmm. And it affects a whole lot of people. And when people get caught in that cycle, it's really hard to describe what it's like, but you're really trapped. You're trapped in it. You want to stop. It's not even really working. Or it's only kind of working. Um, you know, when you're not doing it, you feel horrible. Again, it's the, the balance oh, of research and say, and yet the compulsion, the drive is so enormous that it's just really, really hard to get out of the loop. And then 
When you try to abstain, they're just constant reminders. Everything you look at is about sex. Everything has even, sexual images. Self nude. Right. That's right. Well, that, that was, was that shocking. was well, that was part of his really disciplined approach to, to abstinence was that he covered his own body because he realized that alone would be a trigger for him. I mean, talk about triggers, right? When you, you get to that point. But I mean, I will say that like even I in my Stanford inbox email get solicitations for pornography for middle-aged men with like images, images of naked women. I mean, I, I can tell you, I've never looked at any of that online, but somehow for some reason, those come into my inbox. Imagine if I actually had a problem Oof. with that. I mean, you know, it's you just see it, and then you're you're you can't not go mm. further. So I, I really do think it's a huge problem. And I mean, as as a parent of teenage boys, how do you deal with it? Well, I how mean, how do you deal with it? I, I mostly just well, first of all, we talk about addiction a lot in my family, and the kids have heard ad nauseum about the pleasure pain balance. So <laughs> I mean, I hope that they take that with them and and that they understand what to look for as they're becoming, to, you know, the development of tolerance, needing more and more to get this impact, more potent forms, doing things in secret, um, you know, doing things that are contrary to your values. Like all of that matters. Those are signals for your brain that like, oh, I may be get, getting, you know, caught up, lying about what you're doing, covering it up, feeling ashamed about it. I was shocked about the whole part about radical honesty. Talk about a part I did not expect in a book about dopamine. And that sort of <laughs> ties into the the 12 step recovery that you praise yeah. pretty heavily in the book. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you talk about. Yep. So, okay. I think everybody will relate to there's something that you have, whatever that thing may be. It may be illicit drugs. Right. It may be pornography. It may be sex. It may be, in my case, the drive to accomplish, mm -hmm. right? It, it comes mm -hmm. in many, many forms. Mm -hmm. How do we, if we have an unhealthy relationship with that, mm -hmm. so we've talked about the fasting, dopamine fasting, but the 12 steps, why do they work? How does mm -hmm. radical honesty work mm -hmm. into this? Right, yeah. So the 12 steps are really interesting. At the core of the philosophy of the 12 steps is the idea that a spiritual transformation is necessary in order to overcome your addiction. Um, and that's that's an idea that, that people have talked about now for at least 100 years. Um, but, but really, um, the 12 steps is very practical. It gives you specific things to do. And I think this is really important because when I look at sort of mental health treatment and psychotherapy, what I think is lacking in a lot of mental health treatment and psychotherapy is specific things to do. We talk a lot about, you know, knowing what your thoughts are and understanding your emotions and seeing how those are connected. And of course, that's great. But people need to know what to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And this is where I think the 12 steps is super powerful because it lays out in those 12 steps, you know, cognitive and metacognitive strategies, but also like step four, you need to make a list of your character defects. Then you need to share that with somebody else and your higher power. That Dude, that really works because I've done it. So I, I can tell you that it's, it's powerful. And I, so, and I talk about this in the chapter on radical honesty. I think the way that it works is that we're all naturally inclined to want to blame other people for our problems and not see our own, our own problems and our own contribution to the messes in our lives. But as long as we continue to do that, we are not actually telling true stories. And telling true stories is really, really important to be able to get all of the data, incorporate the data in that thing we call our brain, you know, 
punch it through, and then come up with good solutions. If you only have part of the data, you can't come up with a good solution, right? I mean, that's just basic. But as long as we're not telling ourselves or others the truth about what is happening in our lives, we can't come up with good solutions. So the importance of telling true autobiographical narratives, or at least as close as we are able as human beings to get to that, is I think really, really core to well-being and good mental health. So that that's a that's a key p- part part in, of it. In the book, you talk about somebody who, honestly, reading the book, I was like, I'm not so sure he should have told the truth in this <laughs> example. Do you remember the? Yes. So, yeah. one, if you can quickly recap that story, and then two, did he make the right decision? Oh yeah, yeah, that, that was a great story. So this was a this was a physician that I saw. Um, who uh, told this? Oh, I, I thought I, I saw him like ten or fifteen years ago, and I, I never forgot his story because it, to me it was just so powerful. He basically was in medical school. He got a DUI. Um, you know, he had been drinking and driving. He went to a party, drank too much. The cop was waiting to catch people because he mm-hmm. probably had a quota. Uh, got this guy, you know, slapped with a DUI. Uh, you know, smart guy, got a lawyer. The lawyer said, no problem. You just need to go to court on this date and plead no, not guilty. Just plead not guilty and I'll take care of the rest. So he's like, okay, I can do that. So he dresses up, he goes to court. You know, he, they call him up. He's sitting in the stand. He said, the judge said, how do you plead? And all of a sudden, like he has this experience where he remembers that his dad always told him to tell the truth. He looks around and he sees sort of like the other, you know, folks um, not as privileged in himself as, his, as himself sitting in the courtroom with DUIs who probably weren't going to be able to get a fancy lawyer who would, you know, help him drop the charges. And he had sort of a sense of like feeling like, you know, he checked his privilege and was like, that's not really right. So it was like a convergence of things he had been taught, his values, and he just couldn't bring himself to lie in that moment. And he said, I plead guilty. And apparently the judge just sort of like went, you know, the judge was sort of half asleep, just running through the DUIs in the morning and sort of like did a double take and looked at him and said, are you sure? And he said, yeah, I'm sure. I, I plead guilty. And the point of the story is that for years, I mean, even decades afterwards, this DUI was a nightmare for this guy because he was a he was in medical school. So that means every single time he filled out any kind of paperwork, which was on a regular basis about, you know, getting hospital privileges or going to work here or getting malpractice, he had to say, yeah, I got a DUI. I got a DUI. He had to do classes. He had to do all this stuff. I mean, and he moved to California. You know, he was practicing in California. And so it changed from the first state where he went through all this. Then he moves to California, has to do it again. Right. He had to do for his California life. you years after, like a decade after this or something. And you're like, oh, do you have a problem? No, this was, you know, a decade ago, but they were worried. And so they sent me to you to make sure everything was okay. And I was just like, it's not like this ended up being uh, good on you. You told the truth and everybody recognized like, well done. This has been a never ending parade of painful things that he has to go through. Except that his take home from it was, I'm really glad I told the truth. And I think the fact that I told the truth might have protected me from becoming an alcoholic because there was a way in which those immediate bad consequences from truth telling shifted my behavior. And although it was painful, it was much better than the consequences that I would have had to suffer had I actually become an alcoholic, which he was on the road to become, especially given that 
both of his parents were alcoholics, right? Mm-hmm. They were good parents, but they had addiction. So that moment in time when he chose to tell the truth about something and incur huge consequences seemed like the wrong decision objectively in the immediate aftermath and for many years afterwards. But for him in terms of what it did to his brain and his subsequent choices, he makes the link that it changed his brain and changed his choices and actually protected him from worse bad consequences. Mm-hmm. To me, that was a hugely powerful message about the the virtues of telling the truth. And I give other stories in the book that that point to the same thing, that there's something that seems overwhelmingly wrong and dangerous about telling the truth in the moment, but that in the long run might actually be hugely protective for us. And one of the ways it might do that is that short-term immediate bad consequences change our behavior. That is what changes. When I look at my patients and the ones who get into recovery from bad addictions, it's often consequences, serious loss and consequences that gets them to say, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. So if there if there's a way in which truth telling can incur those consequences in a smaller form immediately, that is enough to shape our behavior in an iterative fashion over time to get us in a much better place. In fact, maybe the polar opposite might. Mm-hmm. Those are all those moments of truth telling are all little forks in the road, right? That make the difference between ending up in a really bad place versus a really good place many years later. So intriguing. Um, there are addicts that will go through the horrendous things that they go through as their life downward spirals. But then as they, in fact, in the, this might've been in an interview. I can't remember if she said this in the book or in an interview, but you said that, that some of the most profoundly balanced people that you know are people that are deep into recovery. Yeah. And that there's something mm-hmm. about the hardship mm-hmm. that makes them find equilibrium mm. in a more profound way than somebody who's never gone through something. And that some addicts actually say, I'm grateful for yes. my addiction. Right. Which I'm super surprised to hear. What do you think from a neurochemistry standpoint, what's going on? Is it just pleasure pain principle or something else? I think it's more than just the pleasure pain principle. I mean, clearly when they're in recovery, they're not using um, they've restored homeostasis. They've got more homeostatic resilience, you know, able to perceive small pleasures and enjoy them. Um, but but I think that the fundamental stance that for me makes people in recovery really modern day prophets for the rest of us is this incredible stance of humility and a recognition that we are all vulnerable and we're all flawed and we're all broken and we need each other, and we need these practices. So again, it's not just enough to think about what I should do or could do or to you know have sort of a, a deep insight into my psychological makeup. I need to get up every day, and I need to do these practices. I need to tell the truth. I can't lie about anything at all because that could compromise my recovery. Now, it turns out that telling the truth about things large and small is probably a good thing for all of us to do for the reasons that we partially just talked about. Other reasons as well that I talk about in the book having to do with how it fosters deep intimacy, et cetera, creates a plenty mindset as opposed to a scarcity mindset. But but these little wisdoms enacted in daily life, taken one day at a time, end up being a powerful philosophical 
and spiritual underpinning for how to live life. And that is why many people in recovery from addiction will will just out and out say, I'm so grateful Mm -hmm. for my addiction because my addiction oriented me on a way of living my life which gives makes it deeply meaningful in a way that I might never have arrived at had I not had this obstacle. Talk to me about the spiritual element. You there was a really surprising moment in the book where you were telling the electro stimulating guy to get down on his knees and pray. And as somebody who's not religious, I was like, "Whoa." I was taken aback, but as you explained the like sort of physical pattern interruption, yeah. It was like, "Ah, oh, maybe this really does make sense." Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are a lot of layers to that. I mean, first of all, I think that in general in medicine, we are doing ourselves and our patients a disservice by not talking about spirituality. There's absolutely an important role for spirituality, you know, in the room with our patients. And, And that can take many different forms. It doesn't have to be religious or, you know, participation in a religion. I mean, we, we all are, you know, spiritual creatures, right? Would you define that as seeing something bigger than ourselves? Yeah. I mean, very broadly, right. Identifying that we are not running the show. Um, right. I mean, I mean, you might even identify it as, you know, neuroscience or, you know, neurochemistry since you're since for you this the, the, the sort of, let's say, transformative moment was the moment that you realized, oh, it's all about my brain chemistry. Mm. So and, you know, and but in a big, beautiful way, in a big, like, beautiful that way, really is right. fascinating to me of like to to contemplate like what has happened, what right. what drop in the cosmic pond has rippled right. out to become us. Well, and that's that's exactly right. That that the way that we are wired is a reflection of the cosmic order, and that is totally awe inspiring, right? And that's a form of, uh, you know, to be in awe of that is certainly a form of spirituality. So, you know, I, I sort of, and but let me just say, in academic circles, in medicine, God is a four-letter word. Like we're not supposed to talk about that. So it was really kind of because it's read as make believe. Yeah, it's a supernatural. It's uh, you know pseudoscience. I mean, it's true. We we don't science. Science hasn't been that, able to capture. Uh-huh. Do you believe, though, that we have a God-shaped hole in our minds? I'm not sure what word to fill that in with. Yeah. So, yeah, people talk about the God spot, right? Like that that there, we have actually evolved, you know, parts of our brain um, that are intended for for worship or transcendence. I mean, there's science to show that, that that's probably true. I believe that that's true. Um, yeah, that feels really true to me. And, and from a, because I like to anchor things in science and I don't need things to be literally true for them to be useful. Mm -hmm. If that's a, like, I don't, I doubt that there, I don't know, admittedly, there is something about this world that I do not understand because I cannot explain (laughs) to you how we have come to be. Um, I doubt it's sort of as described in religious texts, but there's something going Mm -hmm. on and there's some reason that we have evolved for that, and it could be group cohesion, mm-hmm. I don't know, mm-hmm. but um, that it becomes sort of an allergic reaction in the scientific community does not strike me as useful. Right. And so figuring out mm-hmm. why we have these very strong compulsions towards these things seems right. like a useful thing to go into with an open mind. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think, again, this sort of um, harsh division between science and religion or science and spirituality is not the way to go. I think the answer is going to be, you know, where do those two things meet? 
So, so for this patient, um, also he was raised in, in the Catholic church, you know, that was part of his early underpinnings. Um, he, he was not actively involved in the church at that time, but I just had this sense that that would be useful for him. And when I, I said to him, you know, if you need to drop to your knees to do that, what I was really getting at is the important importance of the body. We are so disembodied. We are so caught up, you know, in our heads and separated from our bodies. And it's so important to get back into our bodies and, and make that connection again. And it's also a very important part of getting out of this kind of compulsive loop where what is happening in our minds seems to take over everything else. But remembering that we have bodies is a really good way to, to break that loop. And so whether it's dropping to your knees in prayer, and by the way, I do think that that stance of obeisance does uh, enlist those parts of our brains that were intended for worship That's and transcendence. That's really interesting. Yep, I That's do think- really interesting. So I'm a huge believer that what you're doing with your body will send a signal to your yeah. mind. I have never thought about kneeling as sort of like, there's a reason that we kiss, right? There's a reason mm. that that's become a universal mm -hmm. expression of that mm -hmm. affection. Uh, I've never thought though about kneeling as a, an act of, would you call it? That's absurd. Ob obeisance, obeisance or humility. I mean, if you look across religions, you know, whether it's Muslim or, or Christians, um, I'm not so, so sure. Um, um, about Judaism, but certainly, you know, in Christianity and in the Muslim faith, I mean, people bow down. It's sort of it. And I think it's a stance of humility fundamentally, uh, you know, a kind of an, a, a way of saying, I'm so small, my ship is so small, and the ocean is so large. And it kind of, it's about shifting your perspective, really. It's also um, a bit like showing your belly from a dog's perspective, <laughs> because it's the worst fighting stance I can imagine. Uh -huh. Yes, right? we're so, rolling over. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Right. So that's, isn't that, that's interesting, because that's reflexive, isn't mm. it? The dog just immediately says, well, you know, uncle. Right. I love it. That's great. I never thought of that. Um, I do think so. I do think, and I think then once we do that physically or physiologically, it, it, there's a cascade, right, that then involves our, you know, our brains as well, our central nervous system as well. And so, so that's why I told him, you know, it was a way to kind of break it and break the loop, um, to get perspective, to center himself um, in these parts of his brain that are wired for transcendence. Um, and, and by the way, there are interesting studies, you know, actually looking at brain imaging when people are, for example, doing centering prayer or whatever and finding consistent areas of the brain, the parietal lobe, parts of the prefrontal cortex that light up during those activities. Mm. Do you think there's also an element, cause like I'm imagining this whole honesty thing about connection about, and in fact, he talked about this a lot. I'm fine when I'm with my wife, but when I travel mm. and I'm alone, now I get myself into trouble. Right. And there is an element, cause I was religious as a kid ah. and I remember it made me feel like I was never alone. Uh, yes, what religion? Uh, generic sort of Lutheran-ish. Okay. Yeah. Like my okay. parents weren't really hardcore about it. <laughs> um, and- That's a nice feeling. It is a nice feeling. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder if some of it has that ring of like, not only am I not alone, but there's somebody here seeing me. Yes, and so that matters right, too. Right. But they're also maybe seeing me in a way that makes me feel connected. Because you you catalog somebody who 
was having, oh, and this gets into shame, which was a really interesting part of the mm -hmm. book and I think a really powerful part of life. Mm -hmm. uh, you call it pro-social shame, yes. which I think is super intriguing. But she was saying that she went to the church and sort of laid out all of the realities not, not lying and mm -hmm. they didn't exactly respond well. And right. so then she was like, this is that sort of shameful judging God. Right, that's right. And so there's something interesting about dropping to your knees in prayer of, depending on your context, it could be, I'm being watched over and somebody right. sees my mm -hmm. shamefulness and mm -hmm. so it makes me not want to indulge mm -hmm. in it. Or I'm being watched by somebody who loves me and I right. feel connected and right. a, you know a, a desire to be open and honest. But either way, it's a pattern interrupt. Right. It's, it sort of has that mm -hmm. somebody just knocked on the door effect. Oh shit, right. you've been right. caught. And like, <laughs> you know, it knocks you out of yeah. that way of thinking, yeah. which is really interesting. So I have a couple, uh, a couple, I some thoughts just to what you just said. So yeah, the pattern interrupt. Um, the other thing that I, I would recommend, which also works as a pattern interrupt, is just immersing your face or your hands in an ice cold water bath. Just a, again, a kind of a sensory stimulus mm. that kind of then uh, gets those neural central circuits firing in a different way. But I wanted to talk a little bit about what you were saying, how you felt um, that you were never alone which is a wonderful and important feeling, and I think a deep need that we all have. And one of the things, and I'm just curious what your thoughts on this, that I've noticed about social media is the way that we now travel through our entire day connected with other people through the internet. And I think that there are ways that this is really wonderful because so much of our nomadic life is about connection and then dis forced disconnection. Like if you think about, you know, hundreds of years ago, and I'm no historian, but, um, you know, families, they, they were together all the time. Um, work and play were integrated in family life. This is like pre-industrial revolution, right? Mm -hmm. But one of the things that's happened with the industrial revolution is people started to work outside the home. Um, and, and so there's this, this constant, what I think was very new was sort of Whatever your tribe was, and let's say family is the immediate tribe, you had to break away from them, and then there would be this sort of coming together again. And I, I, I'm quite sure that this moment of breaking away from the tribe is hugely anxiety-provoking because nature doesn't really want us to do that because mm. being in tribes is protective, right? We can better pr protect ourselves from, from predators when we're in a tribe. We can shepherd scarce resources. There are all kinds of reasons to be like those penguins, you know, when there's a predator, mm. they, they kind of front off and protect the, you know, the little penguins in the middle and puff out their chest. I mean, that's what we do. But in modern human life, we're, we're always going away from our tribe and coming back. So I, what I'm really interested in about social media of course, there's this totally destructive element to it, an addictive element, which I, I've talked a lot about. But there's also this wonderful piece of it where we, we don't need to disconnect in that same kind of way. Because I see this with my teenagers, like they'll get up in the morning and they'll like call the friend, right? And they'll be together as they're brushing their teeth and getting ready for school, you know, and, then, and they'll kind of, these small contacts, like little ants coming together all through the day you know, until they're actually physically together and then they don't need to do that anymore. So I think there's something really good and powerful about the ways in which we can stay connected now. Of course, the downside is that we're all connecting in the matrix. And for some of us, that means we're not having these in real life connections and we can't make them because we're connecting with strangers in cyberspace. Anyway, I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. 
If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. It's very interesting. So as somebody that has, you know, built this company on the back of social media, um, it's a really interesting dynamic. So I am very thoughtful that social media is sort of... um, agnostic, right? It's like a knife. You can stab somebody or you can cook something (laughs) amazing. Um, And I am, I wonder a lot what my life would look like if I didn't have my wife. So she's Mm -hmm. this incredibly Mm -hmm. grounding thing, makes me feel connected, that sense of, you know, real deep sort of connection with another human Mm -hmm. being. And so social media to me is not where I go to seek that touch point. But when you talk in the book, and this was the literal thought that I had, funny that it comes up. You talk in the book about um, somebody ended up taking a drug to help them wean off opiates. And he said, it made me feel like connection worked again. Right. I'm sort of misparaphrasing, right. but that's the rough idea. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, if I were going to take a really hard look at my life and like, hey, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? For whatever reason, my social group is minuscule. Mm -hmm. So it's the one what I'll call vulnerability in my life. Or if Mm -hmm. something happened to my wife, Mm -hmm. um, my sister is the only other person that I Mm -hmm. see with any regularity outside of my company. Mm -hmm. And by the way, thanks for admitting that. That's really cool. Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder how 
unaware I am of a very dangerous game that I'm playing that should something happen to Mm -hmm. my wife, I would suddenly recognize that I've been walking this razor's edge for the last, you know, 20 years. Cause I used to be like, when you were describing that, I was like that in high school. Mm -hmm. There were people I would talk to on the phone Mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. And the thought of not spending hours, like, you know, communicating and emoting and feeling connected. Mm -hmm. And now it is my wife. And then beyond that, there is nothing. So it's like, Ooh, I don't know how dangerous. So anyway, social media, I don't turn to for that. Right. So I don't, Mm -hmm. I'm very cognizant of be careful the tribe that you build right. because when it's a small group of people that truly love and care about you, mm-hmm. it's amazing yes. because they'll be there for you right. when you need it. They're not trying to tear you down. There's, There's but, trust. Right. Mm-hmm. Very well said. Mm-hmm. When it is a about building a large scalable community, mm-hmm. there are times where they're with you and there's times where they're against you. And that can flip right. like on a dime in the middle of a day. Right. right. So that like managing communities is sort of its own thing. And so on that, I feel sometimes like I'm playing with a nuclear weapon. It's like incredibly powerful and it can, or nuclear power might Mm -hmm. be a better way to say it. You're playing with nuclear power, you know, it's like incredibly uh, environmentally friendly and does like these, this massive amount. But when it goes wrong, holy Lord, it wreaks just devastation. And so I'm, I have a very sort of careful relationship with social media. I do not turn to it for validation or anything like that. I couldn't tell you how many likes I get on a post I don't check. So Mm -hmm. that's way a dangerous game. Um, But it really resonates with me that humans have this need to be like ants. It's such a great, where you you come together and you do your little feely bits and then, Yeah. yeah. So a couple themes that I think are really important. Number one, you have a person or two in real life that are your core connection, right? And I think that's really important, really healthy. I think there are a lot of people who don't have that. And so social media is their substitute. Mm. And on the one hand, that can be a good thing, especially if there are spaces that can be created where there's deep trust and there won't be this kind of turning on each other. However, I think what people are experiencing, because I hear about it in my in my patients quite a bit, is that they thought it was a place that they could have that intimacy mm. and trust, and then it turned on them. And as you say, because we're talking about very large numbers of people often, when it turns, uh, it, it's, I mean, it's devastating, right? And that you can just being online opens you right. to the larger group, right? like the people that get on a flight they tweet something, what they think is funny. Right. And by the time they land, their career's over. Right. right. It's like, woof, that is, yeah. that's a, a right. kind of devastation. You yeah. think you're talking to the, you know, 132 people that right. you follow, and but really you're talking to all the people that they're also talking to. Right. And that kind of, the, 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 the social media community turning on you is horrific, but tolerable if you have peeps in real life. But if if social media is the the main place mm-hmm. or the only place where you get validation and you feel connected, that's really dangerous. And there are more and more people, I think, for whom that's true. And I think that's a real real area of concern, especially since it's intoxicating, mm. right? It's a dopamine driver. 
Like Big it's time. very alluring. Whereas the in real life relationships, like people aren't as beautiful or as interesting <laughs> or, you know, any of those. And you have to or go out controlled. and find them. Yeah. Right? Like you can't like Twitter. It's like, you can't I can swipe take them leave. away. Yeah. Right? You can't swipe them away. Like I have to actually share my bathroom with this person. Right. So it's more fraught. But if you can make, you know, the real life piece work, it's just so important. And all this time that, you know, we're spending online is also draining, I think, in many instances, those real life relationships. Because unlike in your case, and, and actually in my case, too, I'm very fortunate to be married to an absolutely wonderful man who's definitely my better half. Um, you know, I'm I feel for people who don't have that because then, of course, the online space is, you know, that that's all they have. Um, I, I don't know. It's it's a it's an interesting time. <laughs> Very interesting because yeah. there is a sense when it when social media goes well, it's beautiful. It's yeah, really right. incredible. Powerful, and when I think about good. the things it's brought into my life, mm-hmm. it's like, wow, this is amazing. I've yeah. met incredible people, yeah. encountered incredible ideas, right. things that I never would have been able to encounter before. But there's also a sort of rule I have in life, which is don't do the easy thing to get rid of the pain. Far better to suffer right. and come up with a long-term solution. Right. So the easy way to explain that is in a business, everybody, when you have something that needs to get done, the hard thing is to hire. The easy thing is to like find a contractor or a temp person that can just like come in and do it real fast. But the problem is that that do it real fast buys you the ability to say, well, they can just deal with it for now Mm. and then I'll deal with the long-term thing Mm. later. And that becomes six months, becomes a year, becomes a cultural problem because you didn't, Mm -hmm. the reason hiring is hard is you're looking for like this needle in a haystack of somebody that fits and has the right credentials and you like, and they pass a layover Mm -hmm. test and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so you end up cobbling things together with a bunch of people that don't fit all of those requirements. And so you have a company that's, you know, held together with, uh, bubble gum and bailing wire. And so (laughs) it's, and I think that social media opens that same hole of like, instead of going and finding real people, whether it's, you know, joining a charity or, you know, going to uh, the dog park and like introducing yourself, instead of doing that hard thing, people are, you know, doing the social thing. And even though there are huge advantages to it, you can't use it as a replacement right. to doing the hard work of building these long-term relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. I, one thing that strikes me about you is how strong your will is and how your, you know, your enacted will is kind of how you live your life, um, which is interesting for me just because I, as I've gotten older, um, I try more and more to get away from that and not to have my will be uh, the, the thing that I exert. Why? Uh, ah, well, because I don't always think that my will is the best guide. To? Really, almost anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess what, what I'm finding interesting, and we started here, and the beginning of the conversation, I'm coming back to it, is just, I'm noticing that you and I have identified similar problems, but taken divergent um, approaches to them. Whereas you, you have, I don't want to say glorified your will, because that's not really the right word, but let's say um, 
you ex- you've exercised it more maybe even than the average. I would definitely say I glorify it. Okay, 100%, okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Whereas I have decided that that gets me into trouble and I do better when I'm, because I'm a willful person, I'm temperamentally willful and controlling, that I do better when I back away from that and sort of open myself to what maybe the universe is willing or what other people are willing, which is hard I for me think, to do. I think you and I may have come to the same conclusion, but we use different words. Okay. I think I'll walk you through sort of my philosophy as uh, somebody running a business. Okay. So I've made too many mistakes in my life. I'm too hyper aware of the limits of my intelligence for me to think that people just need to do what I say. Uh-huh. So the environment that I am psychopathic about creating within my company is that <laughs> you have to be able to speak to power. If you can't tell me when you think I'm being stupid, mm-hmm. if you're worried about hurting my feelings or worried about getting fired, mm-hmm. there is no home for you here. Mm-hmm. I am way too fallible mm-hmm. to have a bunch of people around me that will just tell me what they think I wanna hear. That That is a one-way guaranteed ticket mm-hmm. to failure. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some people maybe that are just smarter than me, I'm perfectly willing to accept that, that they can do that. They can lead with an iron fist and mm-hmm. they're just right so often mm-hmm. that, yeah, like maybe, you know, people don't like working for them. Maybe they're a little tyrannical, but they're also so amazing mm-hmm. that people rightly should just get behind them and follow them. I'm not that smart, but I've found <laughs> that there are other paths to outsize success. Mm. And one of them is to be what I call the soil. So I'm the soil in which other seeds Mm. grow and blossom into Mm -hmm. something. But I have the will to, one, I I know now what makes for good soil Mm. by making a lot of mistakes, first Mm -hmm. of all. Mm -hmm. But now I really know what works. Mm -hmm. And I am so vigilant against thinking I know what really works. Mm. You feel Mm -hmm. me? So it's like, I (laughs) I know enough to be like, no, 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 this stuff really works. Uh But part of the soil Uh that really works is constantly challenging everything I think is true. Got it. And so through this dynamic, like here's the real question. How can I, as I become more and more successful, how do I make sure that I don't believe my own hype, right? (laughs) Like that's the real game. And so when you can realize that the thing I'm good at Mm -hmm. is not falling prey to the traps. Mm -hmm. That's the thing I'm good at. Mm -hmm. It's just like, there are a lot of traps here, Mm -hmm. whether it's uh, dopamine and understanding that that's a double-edged sword, Mm -hmm. whether it's that success begets arrogance, Mm -hmm. but you need arrogance, but not too Mm -hmm. much. Mm -hmm. So it's like this whole weird Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. So that like, if I was really going to say the thing that I'm good at is these subtle little nuanced shifts of like, hey, dopamine is about seeking. Mm -hmm. Go forth and seek, my friend. Mm -hmm. But recognizing what you seek Mm -hmm. now becomes incredibly important. Mm -hmm. So I could easily go down a destructive path where I seek glory or attainment Mm -hmm. or something like that, which, yes, would be just devastating Mm -hmm. on my entire life. But figuring out that, oh, I see, Seeking is the thing. I'll never attain enough to ever be satisfied, just the way that the human mind works. Mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, make sure you only seek things that are exciting and honorable. Right. And so it's like finding that little cocktail mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. all those little nuances. Got it. Um, that's sort of my superpower. Okay. So when I, I get it. I get it now. So basically, you you 
have a healthy respect for your own animal nature. Oh, yes. And you say, this is what I was biologically designed to do. So I'm going to do this thing, but I'm not going to be, I'm not going to forget my humanity in it. And I'm not going to, I'm going to recognize, I'm going to watch my animal self as I do it and know that, that this is what I'm driven to do, but there's not necessarily, I'm going to try to give it some meta meaning at the same time. Is that I think, fair? Yes. Okay. And I, I think if I had been born a hundred years ago, I would have self-destructed <laughs> for real. So, uh, but for the grace of God, there I go, whatever that yeah. phrase is, like I, I have that sense in spades yeah. because I saw how dark my life was headed in my early 20s mm. and only reading about the brain saved me. Oh, now, maybe right. something else would have saved me. It's mm-hmm. very possible mm-hmm. had I been born 100 years ago. Right. But the thing that saved me was realizing that being average was okay, mm-hmm. but that humans, the average human is the ultimate adaptation machine. Mm-hmm. And that, okay, so this, I can get better at this. Mm-hmm. And that was super freeing to me. Mm-hmm. But what I want people to understand is I'm not well put together. So <laughs> really, I have all the sort of dark and terrifying thoughts about myself to this day. Yeah. But like, I just cobbled together all these ideas, like this too shall pass, mm-hmm. right? right? So you're feeling amazing. This too shall pass. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, five minutes from now, you might be in, in absolute despair. Uh-huh. And then when I'm in despair, it's like five minutes from now, you might be elevated. Right. And so I never over invest mm-hmm. in either direction. Mm-hmm. And I think because I feel like there's been some big cosmic joke played on me, mm-hmm. which I've learned to reframe, but the mm-hmm. cosmic joke that I really, really struggled with, mm. it's kind of funny to say it now, but like it wasn't funny when I was stuck in it. There's this movie called Amadeus. Again, to my longtime mm-hmm. listeners, I apologize for bringing this up all the time. <laughs> but in the movie Amadeus, uh, a real life contemporary of Mozart laments to God, why did you make me just good enough to realize I'll never be as good as Mozart? Mm. And I heard that probably when I was 17 years old and it hit me like a bolt of lightning. And I was mm. like, that's my life. Mm. Why make me just smart enough to mm-hmm. realize I'll never be as smart as the people that are mm-hmm. able to lead with an iron fist and right. just tell everybody, follow me because right. I'm always right. right. Like, why do I have to mm-hmm. like make me dumb mm-hmm. so that I can't see it? Mm-hmm. I'm okay there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most self-delusional among us are the happiest. Mm-hmm. And so I was really traumatized that I had enough self-awareness to like develop crushing anxiety, which Mm -hmm. by the way, really happened to me. And I went through an ungodly period of time Mm -hmm. where I couldn't even speak to my own family Mm -hmm. because I was just so fucking in my Mm -hmm. own head and so anxious Mm -hmm. and so Mm self-critical. And because I've had to go through all of that, I've had to rely on tricks, on Mm -hmm. hacks, on beliefs. Right. And it was only through all of that that it's like, oh, cool. I can actually get uh-huh. through my Got day it. now. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's really interesting for me because you're going you're doing these things and you're also watching yourself. You have this ability to sort of watch yourself do it. Yes. And it's also interesting to me because I've just chosen like something very different for you know as my own if you had to outline your strategy (laughs) what would like if you had to put words to it yeah so i mean i would say my strategy is almost to opt out of of the dopamine race yeah of what you're doing almost to opt out 
How have you, so rats will die if mm -hmm. you breed them to produce no dopamine. Yeah. You can put food eight inches from their face and they'll starve to death. Yes. Which yeah. is crazy. Yeah. So how are you, I mean, writing a book is brutally difficult. Right. So it's not that I'm, I want to be a, a rat without any dopamine and I couldn't even if I wanted to. Um, but when I notice myself striving, I, that's, that's a, the moment where I go, nope, don't, don't do that anymore. How'd you finish the book? Oh, well that's, it, the writing was pure joy for me. Not, not. Would you have done it if it had stopped being fun? Halfway through. It stops being fun. It's now oh, hard. Oh, there are times when it's not fun. I mean, there are times when it's not fun. What I'm trying to say is if if I had, if no one had ever read it, I would have enjoyed writing it anyway. It was really you pure process. You and I process. are the same on that. <laughs> Truly. But it's interesting that you you think of it as not striving. Right, my, my frame or like my sort of, you know, the way that I think about it is is opposite to the way that you think about it but it mm. sounds like we've gotten to the same place thinking that's opposite. what's utterly interesting and so that's why i think i think that this is really about neurochemical management so mm. you and i are trying to get to the same state of what i'll call fulfillment yeah so it's oftentimes doing hard things but with meaning and purpose behind it right and so you're doing these hard things which you talk about this very eloquently in the book about that that registers on the pain side, right? right? So you've got all these gremlins, which we didn't even talk about this. So if you overindulge on the pleasure, you get this rebalancing to the pain. Right. But if you do hard, effortful things, right. you rebound on the pleasure yeah. side. And it's purely physiologic. That's right. And so I think you and I have done the same thing, which is realize, oh, if I do this really hard stuff, which kind of <laughs> registers on the pain side, right. but there's meaning and purpose behind yes. it, then I will feel amazing. Yes. Or at least not feel awful. And again, that's also where I think I've reset my expectations to um, if I'm not miserable in this moment, and I have a lot of moments where I'm for no reason at all unhappy, mm. which I just take as part of the human condition. But if I have some moments that are not like that, I'm like, party, <laughs> like this is great. Like I had one of these on the plane coming over here. I'm, I'm reading a, a really interesting article by um, a colleague who's an evolutionary biologist. And I was reading the article and there was just something about the article that was just gripped me. I thought it was fascinating. I'm looking down. I see the patterns of the mountains. And I'm just like, this is awesome. I'm having a great moment right now. So I can recognize that, right? Because there are a lot of other moments where I don't feel that way at all. And then I just, I'm like, this is going to last for what it's going to last. And then it'll be over. And who knows when another one will come. So what I don't have is I'm not... Well, that's not entirely true. I mean, I, I, I actually probably do a lot of things to try to set up my life so that those moments will come more often. But it's not like I'm going to accomplish this thing. It's not like that. Whereas I feel like you have, well, you have, you do. Like I want to, was it Disneyland? I, I want to. The next Disney. So I, the next Disney. The next Disneyland will be in a virtual world of this, I okay. assure you. So Okay, right. So like, like that terrifies me just even to like, have a goal like that and say it. I, I don't, I don't, well, no, I wouldn't want to do that. You know that because you've, you're making the mistake of valuing yourself for the accomplishment, that's, or that's right. you're worried that people will laugh at you. Right? Because that was yes. the the hard thing was, <laughs> yes. am I going to say this out loud? Because people will drag me right. on Twitter right. if I end up failing at this yeah. for too long. Yeah. 
I guess I don't have the courage in a way. It, oh, I don't like that word. So to me, it isn't it isn't courage because I don't think that I am anything special. I mm -hmm. think I understand the game. Mm -hmm. I think nature set me up in a certain way mm -hmm. and that the more you look at the, the hypotheses that our current understanding of the brain predicts and you go, well, then if that's true, mm. then for instance, which we've already talked about, okay, if dopamine is really about seeking, then make sure that you never, ever, ever invest in getting mm -hmm. because it is never going to satisfy. Like right. it, the, the science of it predicts that having will never be satisfying. That's right. And every story we hear is that having is never going to that's be satisfying. Right. So the yeah. thing that another you and I prediction- I are definitely on the same page there. Oh, this is why I am yeah. obsessed <laughs> on it. I cannot tell you how I'm already thinking about you coming back. Okay. Because this has been so fun. <laughs> it um, has been fun, good but conversation. One of the things that people have to be incredibly careful about in their life is recognizing, okay, nature, has set me up for certain things. Right. And if I look at what those things are, they make predictions about how I should govern my life. Right. And I think what they lead you to every time is the neurochemistry is all that matters. So because people look at my life and I know exactly what they think, they want my wealth. Mm. And I'm like, that's not the interesting part here. Mm -hmm. The interesting part here is it isn't winning a championship it's becoming capable of a championship performance. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that, wanting that, mm -hmm. wanting to acquire skills mm -hmm. so that you can play well, but never worrying about whether you actually win a championship or not, mm -hmm. that's really, really important because of the fact that we are the greatest seeking animal that nature has ever output. But, but here's the danger a little bit in that where, so, so I, I can imagine people hearing you say that and then they think to themselves okay i just have to strive more i have to work harder oh, I say that so help me help okay me. so, so that, I, I think here? that's dangerous because i think that's getting out I'm of setting balance. people up for dopamine pursuit i i think it's inevitable because what you're essentially saying to people is right here right now is not good enough you must constantly strive for more 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 yeah Right. And, and I don't, that, that's not right somehow that, 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 that misses it, that misses it because it's then it's, it's not really about process. I mean, you say you're about process. I say I'm about process. We say we overlap there, but there's a place where we don't overlap because all that striving to get the thing, I mean, that's no longer process. That's, that's, that's the striving. It is the striving. Help me understand the difference for you between striving and process. If you're in the flow, right, and you're doing something that gives you meaning and is consistent with your values and, and is not hurting other people and potentially gives some small thing, a small thing, a small thing to the world, then it's not really about striving. It's about finding your angle of repose. In a way, it's about finding your angle. So of that's repose. a Wallace Stegner. Mean? That's the title of a Wallace Stegner book, Angle of Repose. I just think it's a wonderful title, I, and it's a visual image for me. And it's the image of the balance too. I mean, if you're fitting into the universe in a just right way. It's not really a striving feeling. Here's where. So I have this whole concept of base assumptions. 
What I have found is when two bright people disagree on something, they have fundamentally different base assumptions. Okay. So my base assumption is that nature has hardwired you and will punish you relentlessly if you don't do hard things. That you must, to have a fulfilling life, you must we agree. do hard things. I have things. a whole chapter on pressing on the pain side. We agree on that. Preach. We agree on that. And so I'm just saying, yeah. hey, if you are striving, doing a hard thing, yeah. in pursuit of something that is honorable and exciting, yeah. so it's actually fun, right? and you know that the attaining of that thing will never give you satisfaction, but because <laughs> nature has done all of this to make sure that you go out and get food, yeah. you have to actually be going after something. Yes. It can't be make-believe. You can't fake yourself out. Okay, that that is fine. I, I think where I think where the gap is, is as it happens, the thing that you are trying to get is a materialistic, like king of the mountain thing. Like I'm gonna be the king of this mountain. That's how it manifests for me. Okay, that's how it manifests. But for the important part mm-hmm. is meaning and purpose. Okay, okay, but but I think that there's a way to be open to your everyday life such that just doing the things that need doing in your immediate environment can take on epic proportions, but never get you so that you're recognized in some way. Totally agree. Yeah. So, well, okay, if you agree. I I think the only (laughs) difference is so... We're all drawn to different things. Mm-hmm. Um, scale is one of my things. Yeah. So I get really excited by scale, yeah. but I don't need it. Uh-huh. So I think the fundamental question people have to ask themselves is what could I do and love every day, even right. if I were failing? Mm-hmm. Now, that answer will be very different for everybody. Yeah, that's for a good me, question. trying to build the next Disney, even if I never do. Right. That's thrilling to me. Right. And part of the fun for me is going for something huge. Part of the fun for me is my willingness with a little bit of cheekiness Mm -hmm. of saying I'm going to build the next Disney. Now, as of today, I'm starting to gain credibility in some people's minds just Mm -hmm. because this is my second in a row hyper growth company that's Mm -hmm. grown by tens of thousands of percent. Mm -hmm. Um, But Part of it in the beginning was I was losing credibility to say it. I wasn't mm-hmm. gaining credibility. Mm-hmm. People looked at me and thought, this guy's out of his mind. Mm-hmm. Like he's never going to do that. It's so absurd. Mm-hmm. He's an, an idiot. Mm-hmm. Like that was the response. Mm-hmm. And what I loved was even though people are thinking that, mm-hmm. I'll just keep executing day after day right, after day after right, day. Right. And the only reason I can do that in the face of people mocking me yes. and making fun is because right. I don't care if I actually achieve it. I mean, you don't care and you, and you believe in the process. Right. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Um, Here's a trend I've seen in my role as a mentor at Stanford Medical School. And I've, you know, been on the faculty since 2000, 2000, early 2000s. It used to be that Stanford medical students were really interested in becoming good doctors. Now, that's not enough. Now they want to be a doctor and have a startup. Or they want to be a doctor mm-hmm. and, you know, come up with some great Nobel Prize winning scientific discovery or be a doctor and write the great American novel. And I, these people, they'll come to my office and they'll be like, this is this is what they talk about. To me, it's off-putting. I, I sort of lament whatever happened to just being a good doctor, you know, one patient at a time. Um, 
there's something there that I'm trying to get at that I think you and I are kind of missing on or I'm totally with you. Mm -hmm. I'm not the guy to give that advice, Mm -hmm. but I think that advice is absolutely critical. And so if somebody wants to be the best parent of all time, Mm -hmm. a doctor and see, you know, patients slowly and methodically and just really thoughtfully, I think that is critically important. And I think the vast majority of humanity is better off pursuing that path. Mm -hmm. Um, It would be disingenuous of me to say that that's what I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. And, but I think that that is critically important. But but here's what happens now. And I think so. this is, you know, again, introducing social media. That person who might have been content with just being a good doctor or whatever, a good business person, then they go online and then they see you, mm-hmm. right? And they see all that you have and all that you've accomplished. And then they listen to your message and your message is like, just work harder, strive longer. You're just a, you know, you're a bundle of chemicals. You know, it was meant, you're meant to strive. If you're not striving, you know, you're a wimp. <laughs> I would never say that, but yes, point well taken. And I I just, I, I worry about that. Mm-hmm. Like, I just think, okay, that's, that's going to make that person feel if they haven't got what you you have, then they don't have they haven't done. I'm going right. to quote Anna Lemke to you, <laughs> and I'll tell you. Ultimately, people have to take responsibility for themselves. Yeah. So I tell people, be very careful who you take advice from. Mm-hmm. So pick the person who's living your idealized life, and then that will tell you what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Now be very careful. So for instance, I want to be Walt Disney. I don't want to be Bob Iger. So I don't want to be the guy going to China and negotiating, you know, these billion, multi-billion dollar deals and like doing all the governmental handshaking. Nope. Mm -hmm. I want to tell stories. Mm -hmm. And I have a very personal reason why I want to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, people have to be very careful. I don't want to be disingenuous. My life is fucking awesome on balance. (laughs) There, There are moments where it's brutal. And so I want people to be very careful who they Mm -hmm. take advice from, very careful Mm -hmm. who they model themselves after. Um, But at the same time, there, if you organize your life in the right way with the right motivations and North Star and all of that, even going for something absolutely massive and big uh, can be wonderful. It can be self-destructive. And I'm so sensitive to that. And I'm Mm -hmm. so sad that I have to say goodbye to you now, but you asked me to wrap in a certain amount of time and we have gone over a few minutes. I'm so okay, sorry. No, that's this okay. has been that's so okay. fun. Uh, I fully take on that criticism and I understand mm. um, what you're trying to be protective of. And I join in that, that most people should really listen to you um, in, in terms of being very thoughtful about mm. not getting into a position where being an amazing doctor or parent or whatever, mm. like that should, people should be able to create a, create a frame of reference where that is incredibly rewarding. So in fact, I'm so sorry, I'm one, I'll just wrap this no, point no, up. No, no, I'm um, curious because now my wife ran into a woman at a buffet mm-hmm. and the woman asked my wife what she does. And oh, I'm an entrepreneur and building a company. Mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, that's so amazing. My wife's like, what do you do? And she's like, mm-hmm. well, I'm just a mother. Mm-hmm. And my wife's like, hold the fucking phone. <laughs> Don't say just a mother. Uh-huh, like right. what an extraordinary contribution mm-hmm. to the lives of your mm-hmm. children and quite frankly to the world mm-hmm. because my wife has decided not to have kids, mm-hmm. but she's so thoughtful about, thank God there are right. people that are out there doing it. <laughs> and I always, that, that really hit me really hard that 
you know, my wife did not want someone to make out like somehow that was lesser than being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. It's just different paths. Mm -hmm. And so whatever you do, this was the advice I got on having kids. Tom, have kids, don't have kids, doesn't matter. But whatever you do, do it all the way. Now I'll change that because I'm sure you don't (laughs) like the all the way part. Whatever you do, find meaning and purpose and like fall in love Mm -hmm. with what you've chosen to Mm -hmm. pursue. Well, what I've loved about this conversation is how much you and I agree, and yet there's still this strange kind of friction where we don't agree, and I don't really even yet still know quite where it is, but it's interesting. Definitely. Round two, we will explore (laughs) the depths of that disconnect, but what an amazing time I had reading your book, Dopamine Nation, which I hope people will check out, and this conversation has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people get the book, follow you? I'm not on social media. Um, Understandably so. (laughs) And the book is just wherever books are sold. Amazing. Well worth the read, boys and girls, of this, I assure you. Uh, Definitely read that book. Really phenomenal. And it will have huge implications in your life. And speaking of things with huge implications in your life, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.